In the past few sessions, we've been looking at 17th century thinking, which we have already described as the age of reason or the movement called rationalism. Well, if the 17th century was the age of rationalism, in the history of Western thought, we look at the 18th century as the age of empiricism. Now, I realize that the term empiricism is not a word that everybody is familiar with. It's not one of those normal terms that we use in our daily conversation. But the dispute between the philosophers of the 18th century, particularly in Great Britain, with the continental rationalists of the 17th century, was principally a debate over epistemology. And we've already learned that epistemology is the science of knowing. Now, often, because I am a representative and advocate of what I call rational Christianity, I have to hear the criticism again and again that I am a rationalist. And I am always quick to point out that there's a difference between being rational and being a rationalist. And the difference is in those last three letters. And as soon as you put an ISM on the end of a perfectly harmless word, you enter into a whole life and worldview. As I say, there's a big difference between being human and being a humanist. And I would say that Christianity is rational. That doesn't mean that I embrace rationalism or that I'm a rationalist. But that's only part of the problem because the term rationalism is used in more than one way in our culture. In fact, I would suggest that it's used in at least two dramatically different ways. The first is the way in which we've already seen it, namely referring to a philosophy that puts the primacy, that is the accent and the emphasis upon the mind and rational deduction as the chief and most important way that we come to a knowledge of truth, as distinguished from empiricism, which teaches that the principal way that we come to a knowledge of the truth is not through rational deduction or through intellectual speculation, but rather by working on the brute data, the facts that we encounter in our sensory experience. The empiricist is one who says that the way I learn is by seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, and so on. Now, in that regard, the empiricists were not irrationalists. They were not opposed to the proper use of reason, but rather they're simply saying that in the knowing process, the way in which knowledge is gained is first of all through experience. And we still have minds and the minds have to work with the information and the data we get from our senses, from our sense organs. But the mind is not first in the order of knowing, rather senses are first in the order of knowing. But another way in which the term rationalism is used is with respect to the question of the ultimate source 
of truth. The Christian believes that though our faith is rational, the ultimate source for our knowledge and for truth is divine revelation. So that the supreme way of knowing is by being informed by God Himself. Now, the 18th century thinkers who bought into empiricism, or at least some of them, were also called rationalists, not because they saw primacy of reason over the senses, but because they wanted to limit their understanding of religion to that which can be known simply by natural reason reflecting upon the experience that we encounter in the universe and not being dependent upon some kind of supernatural source of revelation such as we would find in sacred Scripture. So that school of thinkers is also sometimes called rationalists or rationalism, meaning by that that knowledge is not based upon some kind of faith in a received content of revelation from God, but rather whatever knowledge of God we have is limited to natural reason and science discovering what it can in the ordinary common sense arena of knowledge. Now, there's still even a third way in which the term rationalism is used, and I'll just mention that briefly in passing, and that is when we speak of rationalism with a capital R. And we think back to the 19th century movement of which Frederick Hegel was the prominent thinker, and he saw all of reality being an unfolding of reason with a capital R. For him, there really is divine reason, that reason itself becomes God. Now, when I talk about rational Christianity, I don't mean any one of those three things. I'm simply saying that the content of the Christian faith is intelligible, it is coherent, we can understand it with our minds. But now let's give some attention now to this movement that takes place in the 18th century that we call empiricism. There were many important thinkers during this time, but certainly the most important early thinker in this movement was John Locke. Now, you've probably heard of John Locke, even if you've heard nothing of the history of Western philosophy, because, among other things, Locke was very much concerned with political philosophy, with political theory, and much of his thinking on how governments should be established and shaped had an enormous influence on the founding fathers of the American Republic, such as Thomas Jefferson. It was Lockean theory of representative government, of government by checks and balance, and so on, that had such an impact in the latter part of the 18th century. But I'm not really going to go into his political philosophy here, because he's also very important in the history of theoretical thought for his epistemology. Now, just a bit of background on Locke. He was born in 1632 and died in 1704. So that tells us that most of his life and work took place in the 17th century. And yet, he forms the key transition 
from 17th century rationalism to 18th century empiricism. He was a graduate of Oxford, and unlike the other 17th century rationalists, whom almost all of them were mathematicians or physicists, John Locke was a practicing physician. And he had very little time for speculative philosophy. He said, I have to make a decision when somebody comes to me with an ailment of what is the actual physical cause of their illness that may be fatal. He said, I can't just sit around and do math and speculate about what could conceivably be wrong, but I have to begin to probe, to test, even perhaps to do surgery, to find out with my senses what's wrong here and how can we go about fixing it. So in one sense, in a very real sense, John Locke was a common sense thinker. And he was much more concerned about our common encounter with reality rather than on rational speculation. He was also an outspoken enemy to a hyper form of rationalism that became known as conceptualism. Now, conceptualism, in its most crude form, came to the conclusion that any idea that can be conceived of in the mind as being rational must exist in reality, because the rational is real. Now, be careful here. That's not the same thing as saying whatever is real is rational. But rather, whatever is rational is real. So that if we can have a rational concept, for example, of a unicorn, there must be a unicorn out there in reality. As I said, this is an extreme form of rationalism. And part of it was born out of the incredible advances that were being made, as I've mentioned before, in the new discoveries in the scientific world, where it was the mathematicians who were the cutting-edge thinkers, who were the ones who were saying, our math indicates that if we point our telescope at this point in outer space, there should be a planet there or there should be a moon there, and they would point the telescope and voila, just as their mathematical projections had anticipated, there was the reality. And so there became so much confidence given to mathematics because of what math had been able to achieve in breaking through to new dimensions of learning that some went to the extreme position and said, well, if it's mathematically conceivable, it must actually exist out there. And John Locke thought that was nonsense. He said that, that the mind has ability to be imaginative, to create fiction 
where you combine an idea from here and an idea from here. You take the idea of redness and you take the idea of polar bareness and you can conceive of a fiery, bright red polar bear. That doesn't mean there is such a thing as a fiery, bright red polar bear. And so he wanted to bring philosophy back to earth and force philosophy to deal with the real, with what is really out there. And so one of the most important things that Locke gave to us was a theory of truth. He's not the only person who's held this theory, but his name is often linked with it, which is called the correspondence theory of truth. And in simple terms, the correspondence theory of truth says this, that truth is that which corresponds to reality. That's a very simple idea. In our day and age, it's an idea that is under attack every moment. Because this concept of truth says that truth is that which is real. And it is therefore objective. That what is really out there is not dependent upon how I feel about it or even how I perceive it. Because I am not the author of truth. I am not the one who creates reality. I encounter reality. I meet reality, and I have to respond to things that are really out there apart from me. And the pursuit of science and the pursuit of truth is the pursuit of discovering the real rather than the imaginary or the fictional. Today, we hear people embracing relativism and subjectivism saying truth is whatever I think it is or whatever I want it to be. The Locke would have no time for that kind of thinking. That would make real science impossible because the world would then be according to GARP. That is, it would be one thing for you, another thing for you, and a third thing for you, whatever you want it to be. As I've told the story before about the woman I was discussing the existence of God with, and she said to me, do you believe in God? And I said, yes. And she said, do you find that meaningful? Yes. Do you pray? Yes. Do you sing hymns? Yes. And all of that. She says, well, if you find all that stuff satisfying and meaningful, she says, then for you, God exists. But for me, I don't find any meaning in worship or in singing or in praying. That stuff leaves me cold. I'm not interested in it. I don't feel any psychological need for it. And so for me, there is no God. And I said, well, what I'm not talking to you about here is religion and its emotional impact on me or on you. I'm talking about the question of the existence of a being who exists apart from you and apart from me, who if there is no such being in reality, 
all of my praying, all of my singing, all of my emotional satisfaction surrounding it does not have the power to create such a being. And likewise, if you're indifferent toward that being or cold toward that being and are turned off by prayer and music and all the rest, your personal attitude toward this being does not have the power to destroy him. I said, we have to at some point come to the question, is there a God out there or not? Is there an objective reality that we call God? Now, see, Locke would understand what I'm saying here. He's saying, truth is not preference. Truth is not a subjective inclination in an individual's heart. But truth is that which is real. Real apart from me. Then again, his question is, how do we get to truth? How do we come to a knowledge of truth? Well, the one Latin phrase that is closely connected with John Locke, many people are familiar with this, even if they've never studied the history of philosophy, they've perhaps heard of this little phrase, tabula rasa, which means blank tablet or blank slate. Here's what Locke was getting at with the tabula rasa concept. That every person is born with a mind that has no information in it. It's a blank slate, a blank tablet. Nothing has been written on it. In a word, there are no innate ideas. An innate idea would be an idea that you were born with. Now, remember Plato? He says the soul carries into this incarnation the sum total of all knowledge. That all knowledge is innate, and the whole process of learning is simply trying to recall or bring to the surface that which is already there. It's inherent. It's in the soul. It's in the mind at birth. For Locke, there are no innate ideas, no truths that are inherent in the mind. Remember Descartes? He wanted to find those clear and distinct ideas where he would say the idea that a triangle has three sides is an innate idea. It is a priori. It comes before experience. For Locke, Locke says no to the a priori and insists on the a posteriori, namely that all knowledge comes after experience. And everything is based upon this blank tablet. You're born with it, but then you have a sense perception. And that's the first data bit. You see your mother, or you see a dog. You have a sensation, a perception, or you feel something, or you taste something, or you hear something. And those experiences are then recorded on your brain. And all of your knowledge that you acquire in your lifetime, all of that knowledge is acquired through this constant series of experience. And in this sense, you are learning every second that you are awake in your lifetime. You're learning whether you want to learn 
or not learn. You never stop going to the school of experience. And even if you graduate from the university or wherever, that's not the end of your learning. Every new experience is a new learning experience, as more data is now being introduced to the mind. So, for Locke, all knowledge begins with particulars, individual data bits of experience. And the abstract concepts that we call the universals or the generalities, or we speak of mankind or squirrelness or chairness or whatever, they are simply the result of multiple individual experiences that we have. Now, the mind has no innate knowledge for Locke, but it does have an innate ability. Let's make that distinction. There's no born with content of knowledge in your mind. But the mind, as an organism, has a built-in innate ability, an ability to receive the data of those impressions or sensations from your sense experience. But the brain is not just, or the mind is not just passively receiving experiences. The mind also has the power or the ability to be active. The mind can select, it can combine, it can abstract, and it can relate different experiences. As I said a moment ago, I experience a red coat, and then I experience a red head, and then I experience a red fire engine, and now I'm getting my idea of the red, and now I can combine, abstract, and relate, and come up with an idea of redness that then I could add to my polar bear by imagination. But that's the ability of the mind to take little units of experience, combine them, abstract them, synthesize them, and come up with all kinds of complex ideas. But the fundamental point here is that knowledge comes initially through the senses, not from the mind. This is the question of the chicken and the egg. And it becomes of great importance in the next hundred years or so from the time of Locke's analysis of it, as we will see in later sessions.